Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It's going to be a great day as I always try to plan the best day possible for this these two hours that we get together. And Lance Hahn is going to be, uh, be coming on in just a minute. And he was nice enough to adjust his schedule. Um, so it's going to be a great day. And then uh, Sheila Heen is going to come on after Lance. We're going to talk about uh, criticism and how well we are at receiving feedback and how we should handle it. And we can even develop a little profile on our feedback because it's pretty important stuff. And then Sam Alberry is going to be joining me in hour two, and that's going to be great. And then George Yancey. So that's going to be the day. I think you're going to love it. In John uh, chapter 6, verse 29, it says, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Boy, that's that's what we do here every day. We believe in the one he has sent. Let, let me take 60 seconds. I'll get Lance on. I'm Faith Radio Manager Neil Stavem with a word of thanks for the many generous listeners who have already committed to supporting this ministry once again. Now, a growing number of you have become ongoing monthly givers, and your faithfulness each month has been a true blessing to us with consistent giving. Others of you responded to my fundraising letter and made your contribution to keep Faith Radio going strong in the coming year. Others have given online at myfaithradio.com or by calling 877-93-FAITH. So to all of you who have made your gift already, thanks. We truly appreciate your partnership and support in this ministry. You're the leaders, and we couldn't do what we do without you. And for those of you who have yet to join in, just a reminder that our fall fundraiser called Share begins September 10th. It's a great time of celebrating lives changed through the power of the gospel and the opportunity for you to become a shareholder in this work. Plan to listen and plan to invest during fall Share starting September 10th. My next guest, my first guest, Lance Hahn. He's a senior pastor of Bridgeway Christian Church in Rockland, California. And he's a little nuts, which I love. And he also has two great passions in life, God and people. And so he's a man after my own heart. He's uh, written some books, and uh, one is called The Master's Mind, The Art of Reshaping Your Thoughts. Another one's called How to Live in Fear, Mastering the Art of Freaking Out. He's had a little experience freaking out himself. I just enjoy him so much. Lance, welcome back to the show. My friend, it is so good to hang out <laughs> with you today. I love this. This is how I feel as well. So thank you for doing this. And thank you for adjusting your schedule. I think you thought you were on in about a half hour. <laughs> no worries. No worries. I can totally roll with it. It's all good. Cool. So how has your summer been? Seems how it's coming to an end. Not that it matters because you live in Southern California, so... <laughs> right, so I get to be in Northern California. Oh, you're in Northern, okay. And so we actually do know what seasons are like. Not, you know, not not real extreme seasons. We kind of just live in wimpy land, you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, if right. you're at any other part of the country, you have real seasons. We only have fake ones. Right. So I know that God wants us to help. He wants to help us overcome our, our battles, for sure. So 
what we think and what we believe kind of determines who we are. So if that's so, Lance, why do we end up being so insecure and defensive and depressed and self-absorbed and fearful? I could go on and on. Oh, I got others. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I, that is something that I have leaned into over and over and over, you know, being a, a pastor at the same church now coming up on 22 years. Wow. I mean, I've been working on this idea of, of how can we get our head into the right place? How can we get our thoughts locked into the Lord? Why are we so confused and messy? And honestly, I really think that, that, that the heart of it is Christian identity. Mm-hmm. I feel like that if we knew who he is, who we are, then ultimately we can live the life we were intended to live. I couldn't agree more. Though we sort of lose our identity as a result of sin, and we get tossed around and we get a lot of influences in our life. But if we can focus on God's heart and mind, and we understand who he is and who we are, I think we're much happier. Oh, I agree. So we have, you know, basically three enemies that chase after us, the world, the flesh, the devil. And and all of them are giving suggestions about who we ought to be or what we need to be doing. And so it's almost like a barrage of spiritual advertising, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's this idea that it's saying, no, 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 you don't have enough of what your neighbor has. Oh, so you need to be insecure about this. You need to compare more. You need to do that, Right. We are getting bombarded by this stuff, and really my dream and heart is that we could rebuild from the ground up, rebuild into this idea of who God says we are and who he really built us to be, right? Mm-hmm. So, Lance, how do we identify the, the lies about who we are? How do we, how do, we do a I, diagnostic on that? Yeah, I, I think first of all— um, what, what tends to happen is we, we look at ourselves and we start saying, what am I not? And we, when we do that, the problem is we just end up getting more sad, more bitter, right? <laughs> because we just – you're never going to match up to right. what you're, you're looking at. And I don't think that that is really the best way to do it. What I believe is that instead of pulling things out and leaving a void, I would rather force something healthy in to push out the bad stuff, right? So, so in my opinion, we start – where God says we are. So we first do a Bible study of what does the Word of God say for sure we are. So like I look at it and I see seven elements, right? Now, let me just throw these out real quick and then we can kind of look at them or not. Okay, no, definitely. So so I'm thinking, first of all, we are children of God. It says that when you get a chance— to have the Lord come into your life, you're given the right to become sons and daughters of God. So the idea of being a child of God is key, number one. Number two, that we are forgiven and living in a perpetual state of familyhood or grace. And then three, we have purposeful and effective lives because of the Holy Spirit. Number four, we have a glorious future. Our future is better than our, even our present. Number five, we are permanently indwelt by God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Six, we are abundantly blessed that the Christian life lives on the overflowing principle, which I'll explain in a second. And then number seven, we are valuable to him. Now, if, if we can begin to just soak into those seven, right, those are biblically backed 
solid things that God says about us. Uh, so, for example, let me talk about the, the, the overflowing principle real quick, not to get all preachy on you, but you know how I am. I know. Right? Well, you're a okay, senior pastor, so <laughs> right. how can, how can hey, I stop you fault. right now? <laughs> you had me on your show. It's your fault. Uh, I know. <laughs> um, so, so here's the thing. The overflowing principle is this. God does not ask us to scrounge up things or to think up things or to conjure up things. We are commanded to live off the overflow. For example, God says, I want you to love your enemies. He would never say that if he wouldn't have loved us so much that we are filled from the bottom to the top, overflowing with love that we could then love our enemies with. He would never ask us to forgive our enemies if he had not forgiven us of so much from the bottom to the top that we overflow. Do you understand what I'm saying? He would not have said be patient unless he had been so patient with us from the beginning of our lives all the way till now from the bottom to the top, that we're overflowing, that the Christian life is not about just trying harder and go make it up and go find it. It's simply that he has so filled us that we're doing it from the overflow. I love it. Uh, I almost want to write those, those <laughs> what you just put down, put it on my shaving mirror and just use it as a reminder every day. I don't shave every day, so five days a week I would look at it. <laughs> Right, totally. Well, you can only handle so much, of course. Yeah, you're right. Let, let and me, you don't have to shave on weekends. No, no. Amen. No. Yeah. Uh, l- let me let me share one other thing that I thought was really powerful. It came from uh, another gentleman. His name is Mike Breen. Mike Breen um, is a guy that was originally out of uh, the UK, and he wrote some stuff. And I can't say I know everything that he wrote. I'm just there's one concept that I happen to be amazed by. He is very simple. He called it the covenant triangle. He said, if you picture a triangle, at the very top, it talks about God being our father, that the identity of who he is starts everything. Down at the bottom right hand of the triangle is identity. Our father gives us an identity. And then on the far left of the, co- of the corner of the triangle is obedience, meaning God gives us an identity. Out of the overflow of that identity, we can obey. Now, the reason why this is so important is because religion says you need to obey in order to get an identity. This is the reverse. God is our Father, and He initiated that. He gives us an identity. Out of that, we can lovingly and abundantly live out obedience as opposed to trying to live a performance-based life just to get a hearing from God. And so that concept to me is so soothing to realize that he's not expecting us to become something he hasn't meant us to be. I love it. It, It's really God's work in our lives. It's not us performing, is it? No, 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 no. And that's why I said I feel like everything is about Christian identity, because really when you put the Christian before it, it's not all about self, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we we can all admit, right, we are not the central character of this story. Not even kind of. not even kind of. God is the center of this story. Jesus Christ is the center of the story, and he's a hero. And so for us being the side characters, we derive our lives from him. So it is a Christian identity, all based on Jesus and what he did for us. And I feel like when we get saved, he puts this big package with a big bow on our front doorstep. 
and the rest of our Christian life, we're pulling stuff out of that box going, wow. no way. He wow. gave me this. Wait, he gave me this. No, he gave me this. I feel like if we could just spend the rest of our lives discovering the revelation of what he's done for us, we will be shaped into the people he desires. Yeah, I don't use the word brilliant very often, but I'm using it today. <laughs> this is good stuff, Lance. I'm not kidding. Seriously, I, I got to take a break because I got to get a sip of water. But um, I'll be back with you in just like 90 seconds. All right. So don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the show. Lance Hahn is my guest, one of my faves. He is a senior pastor of Bridgeway Christian Church in Rockland, California, and he admits uh, that his greatest passions are God and people. Lance, here's a great line from a guy named Walt Hendrickson. I did a lot of Bible study with Walt, and he's gone to be with the Lord. But he said this, God makes you an incredible offer. You can give your life in exchange for the same thing for which Jesus spent his life, people. People last forever. For good or bad, they are eternal. Spend your life helping them prepare for eternity. Don't give your life to mediocrity. Life is too short and the issues of eternity too significant. Wow. It's good, isn't it? Well, you, yeah, you said the word brilliant earlier. I think that that, that goes in that category. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick you both in that category. So there. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, right. I'm hey, not taking back your brilliant. Me and Walt are hanging together. That's good. Yeah. And a listener... Uh, came in with this, and this is, you know, you're talking about reshaping your mind. Tell me what you think about yep. this, because I love my listeners, and they're so smart. He, he said in Romans 12, towards the end, Paul mentions a line from Proverbs, be kind to your enemies. In doing so, you pour hot coals over their head. And the fr- first time I read it years ago, I thought, all right, I can really inflict pain <laughs> by being nice <laughs> yeah, to them, by being back. nice to them. Now I realize that fire is being used as a refining, cleansing item. So maybe by being kind to them, we help bring them to a step closer to God. And that that fire pain in my life can be used by God to cleanse me of some junk if I let him. Oh, that's super smart. I tell you. Not only... uh, Talk about just the revelation of the heart of that person that brought that in there. Um, Because here's the interesting thing. We really want our enemies saved more than we want them harmed because ultimately, as long as they are out there in a damaged fashion, they still provide a danger to us. If they are rescued and saved and transformed, they can be an awaiting blessing and not an awaiting fear, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if they get saved, if they get transformed, if those coals go down through and do a purifying work, then, wow, all of a sudden they transform from a pain to a blessing in our lives. That's incredible. That's good stuff. So I want to talk about your book, How to Live in Fear, if you don't mind, Mastering the Art of Freaking Out. I know you've got a history of freaking out, and you're very uh, open about it and transparent. And it's been very comforting to many, many listeners because they go, wow, a guy like Lance is freaking out? Yeah, it's it's so funny about how much we judge on the external, and we assume – this is the problem with comparison. We assume that we're seeing the whole picture. So like if you see me 
and you see me, especially in my places of comfort, right? Mm-hmm. So you see me preaching. Yeah. Somebody looks me up on YouTube and they and they see and they're like, oh, look at that guy. That guy's six foot three, two hundred pounds. That guy's that guy's a pretty big dude. And he's laughing all the time and he's preaching, he's all passionate and everything. Everything must go well for him. Now, they have no clue that deep inside, and there's times when I've tried to walk out, not that long ago, I was trying to walk out just on the stage to start preaching and got hit with a panic attack right as I was coming through the curtains. Mm. And I was like, I didn't know if I was going to have to go grab somebody and tell them I can't make it. You know what I mean? So, so yeah, I mean, I know what fear means. I know what irrational fear means, you know, because everybody's like, well, what do you have to be afraid of? It's an irrational fear. I have panic disorder and I've had it since I was a child. And so when everybody else looks from the outside and they're thinking, Things are going well for this guy. I'm not telling you that God's not blessing me. What I'm telling you is that my life is just as hard as yours. And I'm telling you that my I'm a broken human individual, just like everybody else. And boy, you don't want to trade your life for mine. You don't want to trade. That's not how it would work. So anyway, I just want to encourage everyone. When we compare, I'm not quite sure we know what we're talking about. Mm. So how have you been able to live in fear over the years and keep it in a perspective where you can function? Because I know sometimes, like you say, you can have near panic attacks, or you've mentioned to me in the past that you were almost curled up in a ball in your office prior to going out to preach. (laughs) Yeah, Um, and and to be honest with you, um, there are times when I can't. So, so what, what's interesting is a lot of people want to hear the story and they say, so how do you always overcome? Right. No, I think, I think there's times when you don't overcome. That's why it's so hard. I, I think that there are times when, like, for example, when I was in a 40-day-long panic attack, that was the time that you were referring to. I felt like my brain was splitting in two. I couldn't, I couldn't even worship. I couldn't focus. And... I did not go to work a lot of those days because I was crippled on my floor. Mm-hmm. And so and so now do I overcome majority of the time? Yes. Is that because of the kindness of God and medication? Why yes, yes it is. So am I trying to be a good steward of a broken body? Yes, I am. And so have I been able to live an exceptionally fulfilled life while being broken and weak and scared and er- yes, but I, I I don't think that it, it's going to be a theoretical difficult life. I think it's a practical difficult life. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Like, here, here's here's another example. I was offered uh, the other day to do some kind of fun, neat thing uh, over on the East Coast, launching a brand new concept and and kind of meeting all these fancy people and being all that first thing I had to go through, can my body get on a plane? Mm. And, and so, well, yeah, it's great that I got that beautiful offer. It's really frustrating to say my body will not cash the check. I write because planes are very difficult for me. And so now all of a sudden I'm limited. It has stopped me from doing many things I want to do. Now, I would argue because of Jesus, it did not stop me from what he wants me to do. 
But I, but, but you know how sometimes we also would like a little extra treat, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's the Lord's plan for your life and you're like, well, yeah, that's true. But can I go swimming today? You know, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, there are some treats I, I just don't get because of being broken. Mm-hmm. I, you don't have to answer this, Lance, but is there some, was there some trauma in your life that kind of got into your bones and it's part of your panic disorders and stuff? Well, it's interesting. Uh, and absolutely, Bill, whatever you ask me, I can totally answer. Well, yeah, you um, don't have to, though, because I, I got other oh, I, I got other good questions. Yeah, no, as far I appreciate as far as you that. Know. So, as far as I know. <laughs> and so here, here's the funny thing. I have analyzed that a billion times, right? You know, where does it come from? Where does it come from? Where does it come from? And I look back at the trauma. Now, it happened around the time that my parents divorced. I was six years old. They divorced at seven. I started having signs of it around six. I do not have any memories of knowing they were going to split, but I do know it completely disrupted my security. When my dad left, it really, really affected me. Now, one of the challenges with that is I don't believe that it caused it. I believe that it triggered it. In other words, I have a chemical imbalance. And if everything would have gone one way, I don't think it would have woken up. But I do think that that is possible, that that was an environmental change that woke it up in me. And then ever since, my chemicals have been awry. Hmm. So I always think that I was built damaged. I came out of the womb damaged. But I could have escaped had I not had that that traumatic environment. Mm-hmm. And then do you... Um, um... I guess when is you you try to reshape your thoughts, and I know you've written a book on this, so I'm trying to in the last minute and a half here uh, see if I can get a little piece of a first step one of us could take who needs a thought reshaped. Yeah, I I, I think that the first step is watching our inputs. Okay, that's the first step because we have a lot of things sliding in there that that are making things harder for us. So, for example. If we deal with the fear of the world being unsteady, I'm not so sure it's wise to get up in the morning and look at the news feed. You Good understand point. what I'm saying? Good point. Because yeah. all of a sudden it pours in more fear. You're, you're linking in and plugging into a culture of fear concept, and I'm not sure that's wise. You know, And so I would watch our inputs first, so let's stop making it worse. The second thing is we're atmospheric beings, so – we also need to watch. Maybe we need some inputs of peace. We need some inputs of joy. We need some inputs of calm. You know what I'm saying? Oh, totally, totally. Uh, you are so much fun to talk to, and I can't wait till the next time we talk again. You are such a treat. Every time, Bill, you call, yeah, I suddenly get hyper, and I'm in a great mood. <laughs> Good. Every thanks. time. Thank you. Have a great rest of the day, and thanks for being on the show. You too, buddy. I'll yep. see you soon. Thanks so much. Lance Hans been my guest, senior pastor of Bridgeway Christian Church in Rockland couple of books he's written, The Master's Mind, The Art of Reshaping Your Thoughts, and How to Live in Fear, Mastering the Art of Freaking Out. Lance Hahn, H-A-H-N. We'll take a short break. And then Sheila Heen is up next.
All right, all right. So nice to be having Sheila Heen on the show today. She's the founder of Triad Consulting Group and a lecturer on law at Harvard Law School. I said that with my teeth kind of clenched. Harvard Law School. Anyway, she uh, loves to talk about negotiation, and she specializes in difficult ones where emotions run high and relationships become strained. She knows how to get things done. Sheila, welcome back. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to whatever we're going to do today. <laughs> you know, whatever we're going to do what we're going to discover together. Yes, whatever we happens. are. Yes, we are. There could be role-playing. There could be any number of things. I can't wait. Yeah, but I do want to talk about feedback, and I want to find out, is there a way to do some kind of personal profile where we can sort of determine uh, what kind of person we are when it comes to receiving feedback? Oh, that's such a great question. So uh, I don't know if we talked, we probably talked about this in the past, but one of the really interesting things to me about feedback is how different individuals can be mm-hmm. in terms of sensitivity, right? It's a big deal, and isn't it? It's a big deal. And, and what's funny is that that wasn't obvious to me before, because now that I think about it, of course, it seems obvious to me that there are people who are really highly sensitive, um, who will hear feedback in the most indirect ways, right, or take anything as feedback when it really has nothing to do with them sometimes, Mm -hmm. and who are really devastated by something that, you know, their coworker thinks is just not that big a deal, right? Because at the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are maybe undersensitive to feedback, right? Mm -hmm. They they don't they aren't as upset as they actually should be if they're hearing <laughs> how serious the feedback is mm-hmm. so so i think you're right that one of the first challenges is how do i better understand myself and my own profile around feedback and and um you want to jump into a little bit of detail on that well i'm just wondering how important is it how i respond to the feedback i get what am i saying to myself about the feedback i'm hearing it, yeah. that's a big deal isn't it it is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. And, I mean, on the one hand, we all have kind of triggered reactions when we get feedback from the people in our lives. And by feedback, of course, we mean, you know, all their helpful little unsolicited advice mm-hmm. about how we should be living our lives and parenting our children and doing our jobs. Um but also positive feedback, by the way. People can have really different profiles around positive feedback. Some people are really hungry for it and need it and really thrive on it, and other people are kind of embarrassed, right, mm-hmm. and feel put on the spot, although secretly we're pleased. <laughs> yeah. It feels it feels awkward. Um, so the, the stories that we tell ourselves vary hugely. For some people, particularly if you're highly sensitive, one small criticism – can get sort of supersized, you know, like we're just devastated by it. And one, that one thing becomes everything and there's nothing we've ever done in our lives that is right. And we lie awake thinking about all of the mistakes that we've ever made. <laughs> yeah. So when you for somebody else, like they just, it rolls off of them. So when you're receiving feedback, do you instantly start to go throughout your whole life of, Every time you've had something similar to this piece of feedback and you start piling everything together on one pile? Well, so some of your listeners right now are saying to themselves, yes, of course, of course you do. That happens to me all the time. And then other people who are listening are thinking, what is he talking about? That's ridiculous. 
<laughs> and I think that's the variety, right? That's the both beautiful and puzzling variety among people. I mean, for you, Bill, what what happens when you get feedback? Do you feel like you are particularly sensitive to it, or do you think you're kind of, you know, even keel? Well, I want to look for, of course, my my instinct is if I can find something wrong with the feedback, I can disregard it, right? <laughs> And we can always I could find something. Throw that wrong on with the trash it, right? heap. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm not taking that from no one. So Yeah. Yeah, that's so if I look for something that I feel like, well, that's just not true. That's not accurate. Right. But then that's if, ridiculous. And, right. and you're worse at this than I am, so who are you to tell me? <laughs> right. <laughs> so my blood pressure's up like three hundred points. And I'm yeah. trying to go, well, what kernel of truth is in this uh piece of criticism and can I just breathe a little bit slower and try to figure out and receive what it is? Yeah. Well, you're hitting on something really important, which is that when feedback is incoming, most of us do what is called wrong spotting, right? Ah, that's a big word. What does that mean? We're, it means that we're we're busy listening for anything we can find that is wrong with the feedback. Because if I can find something wrong with it, you know, who gave it to me and what they're saying, which isn't true, and their advice wouldn't work, and, you know, they're worse at this than I am, and they don't know what they're talking about, and they don't really understand the situation. If I can find something wrong with it, you know, I can safely sort of set it aside and move on with my life and not be bothered with it anymore. So we're really good at wrong spotting. Um, And the problem with wrong spotting, of course, is that you'll always be able to find something wrong with any piece of feedback. Mm -hmm. And so it's too black and white. Like we're sitting there assessing, is this right or is it wrong? When most feedback um, has a little bit of truth, at least a little bit of truth, and at least a little bit that's wrong. Right. So Mm -hmm. it could be 90 percent wrong, but the last 10 percent could be actually valuable. Like, I don't think your advice would work. It's not who I am or who I want to be. And I'm not sure you know what you're talking about, but you are pointing out (laughs) that this may be a bigger problem than I thought it was. So maybe I'll, I'll approach it my own way. But you're putting something on my radar screen that maybe I wasn't paying attention to. That would maybe be a 10 percent. And so asking whenever we get feedback, asking ourselves, not is it right or is it wrong, but what's wrong with it? But that I'm going to think about that anyway, so I might as well vent. <laughs> yeah. But then when I'm ready to ask myself a second question, which is what might be right about it? Like what is possibly valuable if I let myself see it that I want to take away from this feedback? Mm-hmm. How long would you say, Sheila, is the, the uh, feedback gestation phase? Like, I've been wanting to give you feedback for a long time, and it's just been building, building, building. How long do, do people usually hold stuff in before, they, before it comes out? Because usually the delivery system can make or break how well feedback is received, right? Well, yeah, it can. And um, I, I bet that if you and I on this broadcast said, for everybody who knows each of us and who has been holding on to feedback <laughs> for yeah. us, just send me a postcard. And the postcard can say nothing. It should just say how long you've been waiting to say something to me. <laughs> wow. And I bet we would each get, you know, a dozen postcards, and they would range from two minutes, because that was a really stupid direction to take this conversation, <laughs> Sheila, on this, on yes. this interview, um, all the way to, you know, like 25 years. <laughs> I'm yeah. waiting 25 years to say something to you. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, one of the things. Some people have no filter. Like, they can't help but tell us every single minute of the day what they think. 
and other people really hold on to things and they sort of fester in a way that actually isn't probably good for us or them or the relationship, but they're just not sure how to bring it up or how we'll take it. Mm -hmm. So I'll just throw this out. If there's any listener right now, send me a text, 877-933-2484. You've been holding out of some criticism you've wanted to give me. Just send me how many months or years. <laughs> and let, let, let me know, and then Sheila and I can chew on it. All right, now, Ooh, that's is, a great is, there idea. A good, is there a good way? I mean, sometimes I hear that you first have to say three nice things and usually mm-hmm. bring like half a sheet cake. And then you, then you say, why? Then you say, why settle for half? I just said half because the whole okay. felt like a lot. It and, is, and a lot. then you, then you hit them with the the tough stuff. That feels manipulative yeah. to me. I don't know why. Well, and so there's a there's a truth at the heart of that advice, by the way, which is. If the first thing, you know, we've been working together for six months or, you know, married for 60 years, and the first thing you have to say to me is something you want me to change, mm-hmm. that's not especially well received. That I kind of need a bank of knowing what you actually genuinely appreciate about me and value about me. And um, I kind of need the positive reinforcement to help us have enough relationship that I'm a little more open, right, to your coaching or mm-hmm. your suggestions or your concerns. But the the problem is that when we jam them all into one conversation and the sort of simplistic rule of thumb is either say three nice things and then you can say something critical or use a sandwich, like a nice thing, the critical thing, and then end on a good note. It makes it too um, artificial, right? Like, I'm rushing through the positive things. The only reason I'm saying them is because what I really want to talk to you about is the negative thing. Right. And so they tend to not be particularly genuine, and very few of us are fooled. Like, you're giving me these great compliments, but I can tell by your tone and your voice that this is not what this conversation is really about. Like, I love you, dear, but yeah. <laughs> you're driving that, me that's crazy. That's why it feels a little manipulative to me. Yeah, I agree with that. I yeah. agree with that. So I think that the answer is... Like, forget about connecting them. Just remember that that the people in our lives really need to hear the ways in which we appreciate them mm-hmm. and value them and what they're doing that is particularly valuable to us. And if we're better about letting people know that, well, it opens up the conversation so that then when we have something to suggest or to request or some coaching, then it's much easier for us to have that conversation. It feels normal. Mm-hmm. What happens, Sheila, when you receive criticism and it knocks you so far off your feet that you don't know how to recover? And sometimes it takes you a long time to recover and sometimes a short time. So what happens when you just really get knocked off your feet by criticism? Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. I had a rough week last week, actually, and and really got knocked sideways. Um, How much can you talk about that? Because that's really curious to me. Should we, uh, should we name names? No, no I don't want to name, name names. names but um, I mean. So, yeah, and I think that I, um, part of what was so hard for me is not only was it sort of a high-stakes situation, but looking back, I think to myself, I should have known better. Like, I should have seen this coming. They were 
so-and-so was trying to tell me that this wasn't going to work Mm -hmm. and I wasn't listening. And so it's a combination of being really, um, devastated is maybe slightly too strong a word, but not, (laughs) it's only slightly too strong, but, but combined with feeling disappointed in myself. Mm. And I think that the, the hardest feedback is often the feedback that we have for ourselves and we're harder on ourselves than we are on other people. And we don't give ourselves the same compassion sometimes that we extend to other people. So I don't know. What's your experience with this bill? Um, it, you know, it, it, you know, it depends because there's times when I get knocked off further than I want to be knocked off and mm-hmm. the recovery is a little bit longer other stuff, it's like, eh, whatever. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's a little bit of a buffet line. Depends on, on what, what, what hit me. Yeah, it depends on, for me too, like, how big a deal is it? Is this something I already know about myself? So, like, eh, yep. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Well, I know I, I know that problem. Check. We yeah. saw it again. Um, did I really hurt someone? Is it surprising? So yeah, it's a whole smorgasbord. And and I think when 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 I'm really knocked sideways by something, I think one of the things I've gotten better at over the years is sort of giving myself permission to be discouraged for a while. Mm-hmm. That <laughs> sounds know? kind of healthy actually. Just to kind of lick your wounds and mm-hmm. and reflect and not feel like I have to fix it right away or I have to decide what I think about it right away. Um because it's taken me, it's been about 10 days probably actually at this point. And I feel differently about it now than I did five days ago. Mm-hmm. It's certainly different than I did nine days ago. Mm-hmm. But but I'm, I think maybe I'm in a better place to see it as, okay, what is it that I need to learn from this? Whereas previously it was mostly just this stinks. <laughs> <laughs> this stinks. I'm not happy with myself right now. I'm also not happy with several other people. Um, and I just have to like, not like do no harm right? to in my relationships while I sort of sit with this and figure out what to learn from it. Well, you're a yeah. smart person. So let me take a little break. I'll come back. I don't know if you're up in the mood for this, but can you maybe give us a case study of a very difficult, um, strained negotiation and how it went? Cause that's what you do. I think. I think. Okay, I'll, think I'll give, I'll give you 90 seconds to think about it, and if not, i got other questions. Okay, good. A whole All 90 right. seconds. All right. Awesome. Yep. Welcome back to the show. I'm Sheila Heen. On my guest line, she's written a couple books with Douglas Stone and others. One's called Thanks for the Feedback, The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well, and another one is called Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most. And when you think of difficult conversations, Sheila, I think the word that pops up more than any other word is the word dread. Mm-hmm. People dread difficult conversations, don't they? They do. What they up do. with that? Well, it comes from hard experience, I think, right? Mm-hmm. 
like we don't want to have the conversation in the first place. We probably know we should have had it a while ago. Okay. And in the meantime, it's probably gotten worse. Um, or we have had it. Like this is version 17, and we know from experience the conversation isn't going to go well, or maybe the conversation seems to go well, and then nothing ever changes. So mm-hmm. I can't quite figure out why or how I can have it again and ha- get a different outcome. Um, and then there's always the risk, like they're going to be mad at me. They're going to you know, think I'm not being fair. There may be consequences for me. So there are a lot of scary things, I think, that feed into that dread. Sheila, would there be some good rules or practices to keep in mind when you're having a difficult conversation, like making sure you understand what the person just said before you start your little mini monologue? Or, yeah, or, I like or, the way you described that. <laughs> or, or no interrupting. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and um, I think that one of the big things that helps me is making a shift in what I'm assuming the purpose of the conversation is, because usually instinctively I feel like, okay, so we need to talk because I have to explain to you why I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> and once I do that because you're a smart person, you will agree and you will see that I am right. Um, And I have to just remember that that's probably not a purpose that you're going to be super excited about in this conversation. Right. Um, Because for some completely unknowable reason, you think that you're right. Mm -hmm. Or you think that the conversation is about something totally different um, (laughs) than I think it is. Like Mm -hmm. I think it's about whether you get home, you know, in time for curfew and why you can't seem to do that, and you think for some reason it's about whether you should have more freedom, which is ridiculous because you can't even deal with the freedom you've got, right? So we're kind of talking at cross-purposes. Right. Um, And so I think the shift for me that has been really helpful as a rule of thumb is to remind myself, okay, my purpose here is not to explain why I'm right and to get you to agree. It's instead to understand what do we each think this conversation is about and why do we see this differently? Mm-hmm. And if I can walk in the door thinking, okay, that's what I have to figure out. Like, here's what I think this is about. What do you think this is about? We're much more likely to have a good conversation. I don't have to agree with you, but I at least now understand why we keep talking past each other or why we're stuck. And Sheila, is it, is it safe to say we should be taking responsibility for how we feel rather than just going into a difficult conversation and blaming the other person for what's, what's going wrong? Yeah, blame doesn't tend to help. Well, no. <laughs> Although, as long as it's involving blaming someone else, it, <laughs> it, it is satisfying. Um, yeah, the shift that we recommend is moving from thinking about blame, because you can't just pretend it's nobody's fault and we'll just ignore the fact that we each made choices that got us to where we're at. Like, we're in a, a tough situation, whatever that would be. Mm-hmm. Which we have a problem. And rather than blaming each other for the problem, turning to try to understand what did we each contribute to getting to this spot? Like, what did we each do or fail to do, which might have been perfectly reasonable at the time, but they haven't helped. Mm -hmm. So um, if we can figure that out and each take responsibility for our parts, that'll tell us what we'd have to change so that we can actually fix the problem. Yeah. And if we're in a difficult conversation, Sheila, is it wise to kind of drop our assumptions that we might have about someone or about a certain situation. Like I can say to you, like, I know when my producer calls for you to do the show, like, I know you've got a busy schedule. I know you kind of don't like doing it. 
Why would I? I mean, I could start with that. You know, I could start. You I could. could. I could. And, and you might go, well, you've made the wrong assumption. I like doing your show, and I like the check I get afterwards. So. <laughs> oh, wait. I must, my mail must be getting lost. Well, there you go. But I mean, <laughs> but assumptions can, can be destructive, can't they? They can be destructive. And, and it's, it's tough because, you know, it's definitely good advice to try to hold your assumptions at least with a question mark, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also good advice to, to think ahead of time about where someone else might be coming from. Like, how does the world look to them so that that actually helps me ask good questions just to try to understand what's, what is important to them, how they feel about something, et cetera. So you don't want to assume the answers, but you do actually want to gather what you know so far so that you know what to ask to better understand or to test those assumptions. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a John Gottman book I wrote. I've only read one of his books, but he said it's not conflict. It's the way in which it's brought up that's going to make or break most uh, situations. And I thought, yeah. "Hmm." so if you're on your way out to yoga class and you're late and I say, oh, by the way, and I say something that's just going to make you mad, it's not the right time and place, right? Well, it's better before yoga class than after, because then at least I can go recover from it <laughs> at yoga. Right. But, um, but no, he's, first of all, I think Gottman's work is terrific and fascinating. And um, one of the other things that he points out that's related to this is that about two-thirds of the arguments that we have today, we're going to be having five years from now. He studies married couples, of course. So about a third of them are solvable or transitory in nature. Like we have to decide whether to send our kid to preschool this year or not. Like hopefully we're not having that conversation five years from now about that same kid. But a lot of two thirds of things are the just differences between us, differences in preferences and all of that, that, aren't going to go away. So the question really is how do we handle them? How do we raise them with each other and how do we talk them through? And that in that way, it's not just that we have difficult conversations in our most important relationships. In some ways, those conversations really are the relationship. Mm-hmm. And if we can handle them well, the relationship will grow and thrive. And if we don't, it starts to fray. Yeah. Uh, Sheila, talk about how important tone is when you're having difficult conversations. Well, tone, yeah, tone is really driven by how we're feeling. So the emotions that we're holding about whatever the other person, the situation, et cetera, end up leaking out through tone. So in a lot of ways, we're better off just saying, I feel frustrated with this, than trying to hide frustration because it's going to be clear from how we talk about it that we are frustrated. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the funny things, which is I thought, well, if you want it, people will say, how do I keep emotion out of this conversation? And usually what I say is actually you're better off just acknowledging the emotion that is there and naming it rather than letting it fuel the energy of the conversation in tone of voice and body language and all of that, which actually isn't going to be helpful. I always uh, learn so much when you come on, and I know that you are um, um, you're so thoughtful about this stuff, and you're you always give so much good stuff to the listeners. Including oh me. well, thank including you me. for that feedback. Now, do you have a criticism? Is that where this is going? I well, I'm just I got to <laughs> pad. I got to say one more nice thing, and then order a sheet cake for you. <laughs> exactly. 
But exactly. it, it's uh, difficult conversations, I think, applies to everybody. And there isn't anyone that probably isn't sitting on one right now as we speak. Yeah, no kidding. So um, what words of sure. little advice can you can you encourage who is sitting on a difficult conversation and they keep putting it off and putting it off? Yeah, mostly it doesn't get easier. And getting better at having these conversations often means you're having more of them over time, but you're actually having them earlier. And so over time, they're they're actually not as hard, Mm -hmm. right? Because we're talking about things as we go rather than saving them all up until I'm really frustrated. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that's when it's hardest, I think, when when they have festered for a long time and just starting by saying, hey, you know what, I, I wish that we had had this conversation six months ago mm-hmm. or, or, or 60 years ago um, <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah. is actually a, a, a good place to start a conversation because you're sharing your contribution to mm-hmm. that yeah. I think yeah Sheila did you lose your mom recently I did not at least not yet oh, okay okay <laughs> if she's listening if she's listening oh. she's gonna call me right away just to reassure me I oh, hope good good I, <laughs> I thought I read you did. So anyway, I was going to offer no, my condolences. No, thank you for yeah. asking. All thank right. you for asking. I'm embarrassed. Uh, there we go. No, you shouldn't be. You I shouldn't be. I appreciate you right thinking now. about my family. I think about your family often. Hmm, yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for doing the show, and I look forward to it next time we have a difficult conversation. <laughs> I look forward to it, too. All right, thanks. Sheila Heen's been my guest. A couple of books she's written. Thanks for the feedback and difficult conversations. You're going to definitely want to go check those out. We're going to take a little break, and then hour two is ahead. Sam Albury is going to be my first guest, and then George Yancey is going to be a great hour. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.